natural selection is is absolutely ruthless. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you if one of those equations isn't right, uh, and the thing ends up uh, not functioning properly, it will get eaten. Right. Uh, and that's in some ways why I think the physics of biology is is so um, exquisitely honed that all these equations interrelate in a single tiny creature so efficiently. Hello and welcome to episode number 205, the Armin Show podcast. We are here in the place. This episode is with the wonderful author, professor, author of the book, The Equations of Life, How Physics Shapes Evolution, professor at the University of Edinburgh, Professor Charles S. Cockle. Welcome Hello. to the show. Thank you for inviting me. This book is, I found it to be interesting because it explains, there's a theme going through the book connecting what we're seeing with the limits of physics as it applies to those living beings around us. And it also talks about the difference between what is alive and what isn't alive. So that's wonderful. Now, before we get into the book, I wanted to see, you are now a professor at the University of Edinburgh. How did you get to that point from when you were younger? What led you to where you are in your career? Yeah, gosh, that's uh, um, a journey. So I have always been fascinated by science from a very, very young age, mm-hmm. uh, as long as I can remember. In fact, um, when I was about six or seven, I was fascinated by biology, mm-hmm. and I was also fascinated by space, interestingly. So those are the two things that really got my imagination. I did my undergraduate degree in biochemistry because when I was uh, an undergraduate, when I when I was doing my exams at secondary school, there was no field such as astrobiology. You couldn't be an astrobiologist. So I was planning on doing sort of medical genetics and going into genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. So when I finished my degree, I did a PhD in medical molecular biology. I studied blood clotting proteins. Um, But it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into biology and space exploration. Mm -hmm. So I went to a a thing called the International Space University, which is a 10-week summer course and pestered a lot of people who came from NASA to come and give lectures there. And that led to me getting a uh, National Academy of Sciences postdoctoral fellowship at the NASA Ames Research Center, Mm -hmm. California. And that was in the mid-90s when NASA was setting up the NASA Astrobiology Institute. So I was lucky enough to get this fellowship for two years. I ended up staying in the U.S. for four and a half years, uh, where I really sort of moved into life in extreme environments and astrobiology and I came back from there and took up a job at the British Antarctic Survey working in Antarctica on life in extremes and then uh, four years after that uh, suddenly the Open University in the UK decided to uh, offer the first professorship in in astrobiology so I I went over to the Open University I set up a research group and then um, my life seems to work in five-year chunks I moved up to Edinburgh after five years there and set up the UK Centre for Astrobiology and became the Professor of Astrobiology at Edinburgh. So um, the rest, they say, is history. <laughs> so that was that was how it all happened. So I, I, I was always fascinated by life in extremes, uh, the link between sort of space, physics and biology. And, um, and I guess I've been lucky to be around at a time where astrobiology and space exploration has really taken off and led to a situation where I can even have a job as an astrobiologist. That is a nice feature. It's sort of like there's a theme sometimes that uh, if you do or you go towards what you like, the world sort of comes to you. Now, I, th- I think there's an element of truth in that, actually. I mean, I think there's a certain amount of hard work as well. But I do think if you have your eye on something and you keep going, um, you know, things do tend to align, just if nothing more, out of persistence. And certainly I found that none of the steps that I've taken in life were predictable. But the end result of ending up doing astrobiology was probably predictable when I was about six. Mm-hmm. You saw it. Yeah. That's a nice feature. It's sort of like connecting with actually the concepts in the book. Maybe our persistence, uh, we're geared towards something. It creates an energetic glow to that. So we're going to fall into that regardless in some form. That's it. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I'd never thought about that as having a, 
Um, uh, interesting concept that one's whole career is a, is an energy minimization exercise. <laughs> and maybe it is. Maybe it's it's less effort to be doing something that you know you're interested and good at mm-hmm. rather than making the effort to do a job you don't like. So you tend to be you tend to form I've never really thought of my life as the path of least resistance. But having said that, um, it may be the path where I felt I could do what I wanted without having to push against the system uh, in the maximum way. So that's interesting. I like that. I'd never thought about that. Maybe we have a whole new theory <laughs> on career development there, mm-hmm. root physics. <laughs> right. Now, you once wanted to be an astrobiologist and now is much later since then. What is the greatest difference between what you saw of astrobiology when you started or when you first had the thoughts of it versus now uh, when you're in it in 2019? I think there has not been any difference. I mean, I, I still feel really privileged to be doing something that, uh, you know, I sort of joke that I'm waiting for the day when the university finds out I would actually pay to do what I'm doing mm-hmm. and realize they've been scammed all along. <laughs> I mean, that's a, a slightly frivolous comment, but it's true in the sense that, um, you know, I am working at the interface between biology and, and space exploration and thinking about scientific questions that, that truly fascinate me. And, and being in a position to teach people at a university, to be able to teach hundreds of undergraduates science in something uh, that fascinates me is a real privilege to be doing a job that I consider more fun than, than hard work. There's never really been a disparity between what I thought and what's happened. I used to I used to stand up and give my sisters lectures on astronomy when I was about seven. Um, the poor my poor long suffering sisters um, all about the planets and whether they could have life on them. And I'm now doing that to undergraduates. So I've not been disappointed in what I've seen. In fact in many ways it's wilder than I could ever have imagined because when I was young uh, you know, the Viking landers had just landed on Mars. That was the extent of any knowledge we had about other planets. Now we're looking for exoplanets, second Earths around other stars, finding um, water erupting from moons around Saturn and Jupiter. I mean, whether any of these places have life, we still don't know the answer to that question. But we're living in a universe that's clearly more habitable than we thought it was. And even if we find no life, um, you know, that will be remarkable given the discoveries we've made of the extent of liquid water and organic carbon and environments that might be supportive of life in the universe. So whatever, it's certainly turned out to be a much more exciting ride than even I could ever have imagined when when I, uh, you know, when I started taking an interest in all of this. Mm-hmm. Now, also, you had done work in the Antarctic. What did you do there? There I was, um, in the Antarctic, I was looking at microbes in snow and looking at the effects of ultraviolet radiation. So um, Antarctica is, a lot, is an environment of, of great extremes, not just for humans, but for anything that lives there. Mm-hmm. And the microbes have to put up with cold and high levels of radiation, particularly uh, when, when there's the ozone hole and the levels of ultraviolet radiation are higher. So I was interested in trying to understand how life adapted to these polar environments. I also worked in the Arctic studying life in the Horton Impact Crater, which was uh, a NASA project in a natural asteroid crater in the high Arctic and studying how life can grow in impact craters. So um, so there I, I spent uh, three summers in, in Antarctica studying life in, in these extreme polar environments. And I should say, of course, Mars is a very cold environment as well. In fact, almost all the planets that we might be interested in or planetary bodies we might be interested in that could have life as sort of frozen polar wastelands. So by looking at the Antarctic and polar environments, we also learn something about um, the habitability of other planets as well. So there's still this sort of astrobiology link in going to Antarctica. Mm -hmm. A few thoughts come to mind as you describe that. One of them is, I'll come back to it, but like when you look at where there is the most challenge or adversity, there is the most to look at. Whereas where else, where something is uh, calmly working or it's not so freezing or high pressure or whatnot, there's not so much to take from it because there's not a high response mechanism like diamonds uh, placed under pressure. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a good point. I guess it depends what you're looking at. I mean, if you're an ecologist that's interested in looking at highly complex ecosystems and mm-hmm. interactions between thousands of organisms, you, you might be better off in a rainforest. But right. But you're right that to really understand 
uh, how biology works and um, you know what are the biochemical limits of life you you want to go to the physical and chemical extremes of life I would also say and this is a purely um, uh, you know there's there's no real science observation here it's more of an emotional point mm. there's something fascinating about looking at life in polar environments eking out a living in rocks living under snow and ice at the limits there's something that that engenders a sort of I would almost say a sort of sense of respect for organisms mm -hmm. really trying to make a living at the very boundaries of, of physical and chemical conditions. You go to a rainforest, and I've been to rainforests, and you see, you know, monkeys swinging around in in, in the treetops and uh, lush vegetation. It's all a bit decadent, really. Right. <laughs> and so, um, and so I, I think as a scientist, there's something more fascinating about uh, doing work at. at at where the biosphere is teetering on the edge. I think in many ways you do learn more, but as I said, it really depends what, what you want to learn. Mm -hmm. I noticed this. I kind of thought about that when I see moss growing out of a rock that's just a big rock. You're like, wow, that's how you're doing that. There's yeah, nothing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're interested in astrobiology, of course, looking at the edges is where you want you want to know are those edges, you know, universal or is this actually telling us something about life elsewhere? So there's a going to the edges of the biosphere is probably more informative in terms of trying to understand the possibilities of life elsewhere. Mm -hmm. The edge is cool because it's right next to, it's like it works, but then at the same time it's right next to what doesn't work. So you're saying, oh, this, this exactly. works somewhere. Yeah. 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 Now, um, extremophiles. Also, the moon, I want to mention, what would be the best place... In the book, you had mentioned Titan. Is Titan probably the best place in the uh, our solar system to have life other than Earth, or where would that be? Um, I would personally go to Enceladus, which is Saturn's moon that has these geysers erupting from the South Pole, mm -hmm. these, these sort of fountains of water. And, and the reason why I would, I would pick that, and this isn't an original view, I think you'd find many other people would agree, mm -hmm. is that we have seen water plumes erupting from the inside of that ocean and the Cassini spacecraft has sampled those plumes and found organic material inside them. So this is the only planetary body in our solar system where we know that there's liquid water and lots of organic material, two of the fundamental requirements for life. Mm -hmm. We found organic material on Mars but there's not much of it, a very tiny amount. And even liquid water, the amount of liquid water remains controversial. But Enceladus has both. So in terms of our present knowledge, um, although Enceladus is further away, the most promising thing to do would just simply be to fly through those plumes, collect samples of them and bring them back to the Earth and find out whether there's life in them. Um, as people have, have said, you know, is Enceladus snowing microbes? And you could find that out. You could get some of that material and bring it back to the Earth and look at it under a microscope and very quickly answer the question of, does a giant ocean in an icy moon orbiting Saturn have any life in it? If the answer is no, then we've learned something. We've learned that you can have large bodies of liquid water in the solar system that may be habitable but aren't necessarily inhabited, don't necessarily have life, vacant habitats, if you like. Mm -hmm. So... So I think that's a very good, that's a very promising place to go. If you want to look for life on Mars, you probably need to look underground, and that means drilling or it means trying to find underground samples, which is not a logistically easy thing to do, mm. or at least it's probably more logistically difficult even than going to Enceladus. Right. That makes sense. It is more local. Now, yeah. you are the director of the UK Centre for Astrobiology. What are some things you work on there? What is it about? Yeah, we set that up um, seven years ago now as a sort of virtual center. Um, originally, we were a node with the NASA Astrobiology Institute, so the UK node, which is actually why we called it the UK Center for Astrobiology. Mm. Uh, the NASA Astrobiology Institute is actually now dissolved. Um, I, would, I would say sadly, but I think NASA just has a different strategic direction, so, mm -hmm. so that's fair enough. But, but that was certainly, you know, originally that was one of the motivations to link with with NASA. So we called it the UK Centre for Astrobiology. It's not a building, it's a collection of astrobiologists at Edinburgh. And the banner of the UK Centre for Astrobiology provides us with a framework for doing astrobiology. Uh, what do we do? A whole bunch of things. We, we study life in extreme brines, we mm -hmm. study um, what sort of biomass or life could be sustained in Martian rocks, we study life in extreme environments, we've 
been involved in an expedition to drill the Chicxulub impact crater, the crater that killed the dinosaurs, mm -hmm. and study the microbes in that crater. We study the physics of life in extremes, and then we do lots of outreach. So we're currently, uh, I currently lead a, um, a project that I set up called Life Beyond, where we're getting prisoners in Scottish prisons to, to design stations on Mars using their experiences of incarceration um, as as a way of understanding what it would be like to live in confined environments in stations on the moon and Mars. And they've oh. already published a book. And, uh, you know, just to plug another book shamelessly, but I do that on their behalf. That's wonderful. Um, we have a book on Amazon called Life Beyond From Prison to Mars, which was written by the prisoners. I was just the editor. Um, showing you designs of Mars stations made by Scottish prisoners. And in two weeks' time, we are starting a new project in Glenockle Prison, which is a high-security prison in Scotland, mm -hmm. where the prisoners are going to be spending six months um, developing a strategy for the exploration and settlement of the moon. Um, so they, they design stations, but they also do writing. They've even written Martian blues music, and they're currently writing some moon music for our wow. next project. Uh, so we do things like that as well, outreach, try and use astrobiology as an instrument of social reform to inspire people um, with space exploration to to see to see the wider challenges of, of civilization and to make uh, to give them a feeling that they want to contribute towards that future. So that's exciting as well. In some ways, you know, the science is great, but I'm just a scientist, so I'm expected to do that. <laughs> in some ways, you know, going and teaching in prisons. Uh, is even more exciting because it's actually using our scientific knowledge to try and better society. And that's a really thrilling thing to try and do. Mm -hmm. Well, a few things came to mind there. One of them is, it kind of reminded me how, this is unrelated, but Gordon Ramsay, the chef, he went to a prison and had them, uh, it was like a project of having them cook and create a baking company. So it's nice to include individuals that don't normally get included. That's one feature. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And, you know, there's two ways that you can try and um, include them in society. One is to say, well, okay, they've done something bad. How do we give them some experience that will try and make them better? Right. Another way is to ask yourself, well, actually, is there anything? Because very few of them have a, have a good view on education, which is one of the reasons why they end up in prison. Right. Is there any experience they have that's actually better than the rest of us, where they can feel a pride in having a knowledge that none of us can match, so they can finally see for themselves that without much effort, you can better yourself to a point where you can contribute something unique? And if you think about it, um, if you were to ask the question, which group of human beings on the planet have, have come closest to understanding the experience of long-term confinement on the moon and Mars? Right. Uh, it's prisoners. In fact, prisons you can think about as the longest-running Mars and Moon <laughs> analog program on, in the world. So they have a knowledge of how to deal with other people, how to get on with other people over many years um, that none of us have. And in fact, prisons in many ways are even more restrictive than the Moon and Mars, because at least on the Moon and Mars you can put on a spacesuit and walk out. Right. Uh, some of these people will never even walk out of prison. So that's really exciting for them because it makes them realize they've got some knowledge that they can share with the rest of society that, that really can be matched by no one else. Mm -hmm. I like this of giving out a project that allows the people to use their skill, kind of like what you did with your students and finding out the physics of the ladybug, detailing all the elements that a ladybug has to do with their uh, chitin shell and their legs. How did you come up with that? And uh, has that continued in some form, or that was just a one-time thing? That was uh, that actually followed a comment by Martin Rees, who's the astronomer royal here, mm -hmm. um, who's an astrophysicist. And he stood up. I heard him giving a lecture, and he stood up and he said, um, I'm really glad I'm studying stars because they're much simpler to understand than insects. And I thought, well, that's an interesting comment, actually. I hadn't really thought about biology in that way. So I thought maybe, you know, let, let's test that out. Mm -hmm. So I, I, we have a thing in our department called group projects where you give some undergraduates a project and they think about it mm -hmm. for a few months. And I, I said to them, well, the group that I had go away for three or four months and write down all the equations that we need to know to understand how a star works and all the equations we need to know to understand how a ladybug works. And they went away and did this. And, and sure enough, you know, unsurprisingly, they came back in the affirmative that, yes, you know, with a page of 
paper you can write down a few equations that explains how the sun works there's a you know some equations of nuclear fusion uh gravitation and a few other things besides but not much but when you come to an insect you've got aerodynamics you've got equations for how it um diffusion for eating things mm-hmm. for uh, digesting things, equations for walking, equations for uh, gas exchange, and it goes on and on. The you know, eyes, the lenses. The, uh, the lenses, mm-hmm. uh, s- smelling the environment, sensing uh, mm-hmm. the whole range of electromagnetic radiation, um, even just lifting off aerodynamics, effects of drag, you, you get into that lift. I mean, the aerodynamics then links with thermal equations. You know, the thing can't get too cold or it can't move around anymore. Mm-hmm. So on and on it goes. And you end up <coughs> with a, you know, 40, 50 page report um, covered in equations about uh, the existence of a ladybug. So it is interesting that biology is uh, um, almost a, a synthesis of a vast number of physical equations given uh, given presence in, in the living organic form. Mm-hmm. I like this concept because when I was looking at that, uh, a ladybug is so small and has to do or their body has to act on the environment with all these restrictions and you see it and it's alive. And so I think about it the same way that it's alive. So it had to do, it has to respond to physics in all its forms in the same way. Sometimes let's say I look at somebody who is uh, notable in some category. I just know for a fact, the fact that they're notable and moving solidly in their category means that they're doing a b c d e f g they have to be just to get to that point yeah that's a very good analogy Mm -hmm. that's exactly right and and of course natural selection is is absolutely ruthless Mm -hmm. um you know if you if one of those equations isn't right uh and the thing ends up uh not functioning properly it will get eaten right Uh, and that's in some ways why i think the physics of biology is is so um, exquisitely honed that all these equations interrelate in a single tiny creature so efficiently. You say, you know, how how can that be? How 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 did something become uh, such a beautiful repository of so many different um, so many different equations? And of course, the answer is really quite trivially: it has to be, or else it will not survive. Uh, and reproduce in the in the game of evolution. So billions of years forces um, a high degree of of uh, efficiency, if you like, or, or perfection. N- not necessarily perfect, but attempting to reach perfection in in these um, in the use of these equations. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, if if elements are always pushed towards specific uh, values that work functionally. And a lot is predictable, like it was described that uh, even some creatures were predicted before they were found. Or like the periodic table, there was elements that we didn't know, but they had to fit into the table. Is Do you find a lot to be predictable on the planet? And also, in connection to like free will, does this show that maybe there's not... Uh, how do you feel on that issue? Yeah, So, so the first issue of predictability. I think biology is a lot more predictable than people like to think. Right. One of the things I was actually quite careful to say, uh, to, to point out is several points in the book, even though uh, people who reviewed it didn't seem to pick up on this, mm-hmm. is I never said everything was completely predictable. Right. In fact, I, I very explicitly said that where natural selection does not so ruthlessly impinge itself on organisms, uh, you know, you can have different colors of wings and different shapes of jaws. And in mm-hmm. fact, this diversity is what explains the vast diversity of life on Earth. If everything was completely predictable, right. we would just have like, you know, five or six different organisms all traipsing around on the planet. Mm-hmm. And clearly we don't see that. We, we see millions of forms. In fact, Darwin himself talks right. about endless forms most beautiful. So, so no one could ever deny the role of, of chance and contingency in creating vast diversity. Uh, but really the only point I was trying to make in my book is that consigning predictability in physics as something trivial in the background that just happens and it's not interesting in evolution is not something you know i i would would agree is a is is a is a good approach to understanding the process of evolution Mm -hmm. because the predictability of forms is much greater than most people would think i mean uh, again a trivial example is streamlined bodies in the water it doesn't matter whether you're a a shark, which is a fish, a dolphin, which is a mammal, or an ichthyosaur, which is an extinct reptile. Mm-hmm. They all have streamlined bodies. 
Why is that? Because if you want to move through water, hydrodynamics means you need a streamlined body. So that's just a, a nice, simple example of physics shaping biology. And the point of my book was to say that right away from the atomic structure through to the families of, of animals, so from the smallest scale to the largest scale of biology, you find an enormous amount of predictability that explains much about uh, the beautiful symmetry of our biosphere mm-hmm. and the common forms that you observe despite this vast Darwinian uh, diversity of, of detail. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then you asked me about free will. Yes. Okay, <laughs> that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, you see, free will to me is one of those words that's, that's a sort of weasel phrase, I right. think. Because yes. it, like a lot of these things, you can get trapped in language. Right. And you can go round and round in circles. But ultimately, you have to ask yourself, what does that really, really mean? Right. Um, yeah. Is there free will? Ultimately, no, because right. our brain is, uh, is a machine in a skull. And mm-hmm. I don't believe in something beyond that. If you are religious and you think that someone else is putting the strings, well, mm-hmm. you know, you could go off on an argument about the fact that that doesn't suggest free will either right. because someone else is pulling the strings. So forgetting that for the moment and assuming that your brain is just something inside a, um, a, a skeletonized skull, mm-hmm. then then clearly it must be deterministic at some level. Yes. You could go on about quantum effects, you know, unpredictability, but unpredictability doesn't, doesn't allow free will in through the door. It just means you're unpredictable. Mm-hmm. So I, I've never been really sure what free will means. I, I think that we do have uh, certain neurological loops in our brain that give us the illusion of, right. of the real genuine illusion of self-reflection. And I think that confronted with two outcomes, um, with the pressure of, of legalities and uh, moral mores, social mores behind you, you can make choices and you could argue that ultimately, if someone commits a crime, that was just because society did not get those legal requirements across clearly enough, and therefore it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. But I think that, and, and sometimes when people argue about free will, that's the line they would take. Therefore, can we say that no one's responsible for anything? But I think that step is a, is a trivially stupid step. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I understand it, and in fact, logically, I agree with it. I think if you really want to talk biochemistry, you could say that no one has responsibility for anything. Mm-hmm. And if someone commits a crime, it just means the information that went into their ears and eyes was not sufficient to make them take another choice, right. in which case society needs to change the information it's giving out. But, you know, ultimately, if you take that line, then you can never really improve society at some point. Someone who's committed a crime needs to be put in a situation that's less good, uh, going back mm-hmm. to prisons, in order that information going into everyone else's brains puts them off from doing the same thing. So in order to have these pathways of self-correction in society so we can live tolerable lives uh, and not live in the state of nature of you know, a war of all against all, as, as Hobbes once said, mm-hmm. Um, you have to have people accept responsibility and you have to have consequences. So regardless of what you think about biochemistry, the question of whether we ultimately can make true choices or whether it's all just about the information that's in our skulls doesn't really impinge on whether we construct societies where we do hold people responsible for what they do. So I, I I think the simple answer is, no, we don't have free will at a biochemical level, but sort of so what? <laughs> right, right. I've noticed that when the, the question comes up, and even when I brought it up, but yes, there's something in it that's, uh, you just described it, a broader view actually negates the need for that thinking. Yeah. 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 That's wonderful. Now, one thing is, later in the book, you described how um, biologists and physicists look at things with a different perspective, which I've noticed in different fields, it's the same stuff. It's our universe, as you described. But mm. biologists come with a top-down approach, while a physicist will come from the bottom up with a simple model and try to explain it. Um, I've noticed this, that the individuals I have resonated with, some of them are uh, past individuals I've spoken with, like uh, John H. Miller at the Santa Fe Institute or other individuals at future of humanity they're more like um, combining different categories and they're not looking at the spaces Mm. between them as heavily and they are more able to uh, 
see things broadly. Like John H. Miller said that uh, all cities are basically different versions of the same city, just with different environmental variables and time of growth, which is Mm -hmm. kind of like uh, you described, I think it was the moles, when they are trying to uh, dig into the dirt, then they have to be a certain uh, wide or a narrow uh, size so that they can push high pressure onto the dirt. Do you see this theme across all elements that we are, we have come to, uh, there's certain rules for each category that that's it. There's not really something beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the simple observation I, I make in my book, which is so simple, it's almost beyond trivial, is that mm-hmm. biology must operate within the laws of physics. But it's surprising the number of people, and this is not so much a criticism, I'm not saying people are stupid, I'm just saying right. that human beings have this sense that they are so detached from the, from from nature, which just comes from the fact we've built a civilization that is physically uh, detached in many ways, directly at least, right. from the biosphere. So we tend to project these ideas onto biology. Uh, so biology, of course, cannot operate outside the laws of physics. So it would not be surprising that um, although there's huge complexity in the in this matter, this stuff we call life, it still has to conform to these rules, and these rules are not limitless. Um, and in fact, the, the complexity of biology in some ways is, a, is, is, again, a very anthropocentric view. We want to believe we're complex and always have wanted to because we want to see that we're something special. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's always struck me in working with physicists and being in a physics department is, um, although life is complex, I'm just going to contradict myself now, and how you see all these patterns in biology, um, how you see... Uh, things flowing in particular ways, aerodynamics working in particular ways, and that you can become bedazzled by the vast diversity in detail. And yet behind that, these lumps of matter that are just replicating on a tiny planet, Mm -hmm. all of which are fairly small lumps of matter on the universal scale, are not actually that stunning. And they're not doing anything that's that remarkable. It's just remarkable to the human eye because we see it all the time. And we wonder at this phenomena just because, you know, it's certainly different from a star or water flowing down a river, but it's still not not that astonishing. When I say that astonishing, I can't quantify that. I'm just saying, you know, it's not outside the laws of physics. There's There's nothing inexplicable going on here. Right. We're following the rules that are set up, the pressure laws, gas laws, gravity. Mm -hmm. I like that you made that distinction with what Charles Darwin said. He said there's an endless amount of organisms, but you made a distinction that the gravity, the delimiter is the main element there. Yes, and he, he, funny because he spoke about, you know, life emerging from the planet just going on its orbit and being influenced by the laws of gravity, you know, the simple laws of gravity, as he was implying. And then out of this simple beginning came wondrous forms, endless forms, most beautiful. And yet that very, those very laws of gravity are one of the things that determines the difference between large creatures and small creatures. So we have no, we've never escaped the laws of gravity. Uh, biology has not somehow diverged away from these simple laws from which our universe started. We're still inextricably linked with those simple laws. So the endless forms most beautiful continue to be controlled and corralled by the simplest laws established at the beginning of the universe. Mm -hmm. One thing I liked was when you were describing, I never thought about that, the animals coming from water to land, that the main issue was their weight is the same weight, but then they had to counter their buoyancy that water provided, but that you don't have when you're on land. I never thought about that's the main differentiator between those two and so the animals that were able to handle their weight uh without subtracting the buoyancy would be the ones that would make it on land exactly yeah and that's a physics thing again it's just simply pushing yourself up against gravity and a nice example which is one of the reasons why i thought it would be useful because it's a nice simple illustration of how gravity can suddenly that, that when you change from one environment to another um physical laws start to dominate in different ways. I mean, they're not new physical laws. Something in the oceans is certainly uh, under the influence of gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it, it, it becomes the dominating force when you move on to land. 
Uh, and so what life is doing is, is moving across a patchwork of environments in which different physical laws require different solutions. The equations uh, of life, again, are um, the same. Different equations may come, in, may come to the fore and different solutions to those equations may come into the fore. So life is, is simply changing this patchwork of equations. And the, the, the way I described this when I was talking about the ladybug in the book is mm-hmm. that you change one equation, that then feeds into other equations that then have to change. You can think about a, li- a life form as a big sheet of paper mm-hmm. that's covered in equations, all of which connect with each other. So the thickness of your wing case that you might need to stop yourself from losing heat too quickly will change your aerodynamics. So every every equation is linked with every other equation. If you change one, that ripples right the way through all the other equations. So as life moves, say, from in water onto land or from any environment into another environment, those changes are simply rippling through physical equations and natural selection is doing its thing of selecting out those organisms where those equations are not optimized in the right way. So you just end up with another physical machine where the equations are optimized to a new environment. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like everything we look at is the best version of what could have happened in a way. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. That's a cool thing. Now, completely sort of unrelated, but towards back to the astrobiology and outer space, mm. on episode uh, 202, I had talked with Professor Robin Hansen from George Mason University. He has mm. this view called the Great Filter, which is that um, we don't have life beyond us that we can see uh, in the far distance. We have life here, so that I'm summarizing it, but that that means either there wouldn't be life way out there because it would have somehow reached out towards us by now being advanced, or we don't make it beyond Earth because uh, that would be what happened out there. Mm-hmm. What is your view related to this concept? Yeah, um, I'm going to disagree with it. <laughs> I think it's very interesting. I've never understood this concept that there has to be one great filter to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've heard this argument that if we... Um, if we didn't find life on Mars, that would be a really good thing mm-hmm. because it would mean that the filter was behind us right. and that what makes life in the universe are extremely rare, which is why we haven't heard from it, yes. is something that could block life very early on. So if there are no microbes on Mars, that big filter must have happened earlier on and we've obviously therefore got past it mm-hmm. and therefore we're past the bad times. That's good news. Um, but I've never understood why we would ha- why there would only be one great filter. It, mm-hmm. it has an appealing rhetorical resonance to it. But who says there aren't ten big filters? Right. You can be killed off at the origin of life. Uh, microbes might, for whatever reason, get killed off. And then maybe there's a filter of nuclear war when you've become an intelligent civilization. So if we don't find life elsewhere in the universe or don't find life on Mars, I'm not sure it tells us anything. It doesn't mean to say that the bad times are behind us. It simply could be that there are 10 filters. If you want to become a spacefaring civilization, you've got to get through all of them. And we've maybe got through three or four in our biological history, our our natural evolutionary history, but that doesn't mean to say there aren't six other filters up ahead, uh, perhaps one right the way around the corner that's going to knock us out. So, So I've never really even understood the conceptual, the basic conceptual idea of this great filter. Who says there's only one great filter? Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that's the first thing. The second thing is I'm not sure we're on, in a position to say anything about um, the, the, the distribution of life in the universe quite yet. I mean, the reason why we're not contacting aliens could simply be that they're too far away. Mm-hmm. If, if, you know, if, the, if the limit to communication and travel through the universe is inexorably set by the, the, the speed of light, and some people would immediately retort and say, oh, you're being narrow-minded. But I'm just talking about present-day physics. I'm not denying that that might change, mm-hmm. but just sticking within the boundaries of science. If it does, in fact, turn out that the speed of light is a, a glass ceiling, it may just be that civilizations pop in and out across the universe. And unless you happen to be in a, a star cluster somewhere where purely by coincidence you end up next to another civilization that's a few light years away, and you could truly communicate with them. It could well be that most civilizations, if they exist at all, just pop in and out across the universe, never communicating with each other or or making contact. So there may not even need to be reasons to find, uh, you may not need to find reasons why civilizations have destroyed themselves. There may just be natural barriers. Um, 
a bit like um, a mountain range stopping a small flightless invertebrate from getting from one side of a continent to another. So I'm, I'm not so sure mm-hmm. that we can really say anything yet about, one, how common life or intelligent life in particular is, uh, and even less, two, whether that has any implications uh, that we can draw out about our own future and our own prospects for survival. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think about that concept as described, I, I view it like a 3D uh, field, and then there's a bunch of hills of different sizes, and then mountains that are higher, and that um, sometimes if you're on a lower hill, you can only see so far, and you would have to go to an energetic low and then go back up a higher hill or take a risk yes. or jump to get there. So maybe yeah. you can't see that over there, there are larger hills over there. That's that's correct, yeah. yeah. It's almost like a fitness landscape of, of challenges. Mm-hmm technological fitness landscape if you like of things that would challenge our civilization and uh you know you 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 have to climb up to higher points to really see where you've come from and and understand where you might end up going Mm -hmm. i want to point out one thing that uh, comes to mind which is uh valuable for people hearing it is that i note the connections between something so like in uh, your book you mentioned that the metabolic rate of animals formula was 70 times mass to the three-fourths or 0.75 so it was nice to see this uh, uh ratio so like uh, larger animals have uh, greater, mm. greater metabolic rates exactly. mm-hmm. and then there's a beautiful book um by jeff west called scale actually um, i've read that i interviewed him one time okay jeffrey west yeah uh-huh yeah, I thought that was that was a wonderful summary of of ideas about the again the physical basis of those uh, power laws mm-hmm. that that predict um, you know metabolism and, and size and uh, and blood flow and all sorts of things to do with metabolism and he he did a particularly nice job but of course people have um, proposed that these power laws are ultimately linked with energy production and Mm -hmm. and heat loss and size of organisms. So whatever you choose as your explanation, even if you happen to agree or disagree with some of these explanations, I think you can't escape uh, falling back on a physical explanation. Mm -hmm. Those um, those power laws have to come from somewhere. If they're not just contingent random events of evolution, if they were, they could be any power, not a power law, they could be any exponent that would be any value you chose. The fact that they're power laws you know, tells you that ha- there have to be physical principles determining those things. So those are particularly wonderful and very old examples of um, the shape of biology, the, the behavior of biology ultimately being led by by physical principles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's like physics comes from underneath. Exactly. Says. Exactly. It's there at the foundations of biology, whether you like it or not. Right. Yeah. This is wonderful. Now, Separate from this wonderful book, I wanted to include some material. You are in Scotland, and um, you are in Edinburgh. I have mm-hmm. had a uh, guest before, Mary, costume designer in Glasgow, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, that's over there. I'm in the United States in California. Now, uh, one thing is, this was an interesting, kind of a curious question, but I don't know if it's connected. Does the sky uh, come across any differently in different parts of the world? Is it like smaller looking in parts of the world? Is there any differences? You mean the sky sky up, mm-hmm. up there? Yep. Yes, sure. Um, it's uh, You go to Antarctica, you know what the ancients used to think they lived on a planet with a giant dome over their heads mm-hmm. um, with holes in it where the, where, the, you know, where the light came through. And we always look at that and think, what, what were they thinking? Okay, they had to think about something, so that'll work. Um, mm-hmm. You go to a place like Antarctica where, you are, where there are no trees and no buildings, mm-hmm. And you really get a sense of that 360-degree horizon, a giant dome over your head. The only other place where I've experienced that is Outer Mongolia. Mm. Uh, uh, A long time ago, I was on an expedition there and ended up in the middle of the Mongolian steppe where I had the same experience. That wonderful vast sky, um, particularly at night where you can see the stars very clearly, the giant stripe of the Milky Way uh, across the night sky, and really get a sense of your... Uh, cosmic insignificance. I know this is a very uh, cliche thing to say, but Mm -hmm. it's a cliche for a reason, I think. (laughs) You do get a real sense in these places. And Scotland is is the same if you go to some of the islands in the Western Hebrides Mm -hmm. where there's not much light pollution and the horizon stretches all around you. You also get this wonderful clarity of the night sky. And I 
I think every human being should experience this on a regular basis just because I think it's a very cathartic, uh, humbling uh, and beautiful thing to, to look up into the sky and just contemplate for a brief moment um, your existence on this tiny speck of uh, rock orbiting a star and to see the Milky Way galaxy. And, of course, as, since people have done time immemorial, to look up there and wonder whether there are other pairs of eyes looking back from our planet around another star, seeing a different night sky, but looking directly back at you, wondering, is there anything out, out there? I always think that's a, uh, a wonderful thing to, to think about. Mm-hmm. As far as Scotland, um, how has your experience been there? Do you like it? Now, are you completely Scottish? I don't recall if you had mentioned that. No, I come from England. Right. Um, I absolutely love Scotland. I love Edinburgh because the city is very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love it because I wallow uh, 100% in the 18th century vision of the Enlightenment. <laughs> um, I've written a whole set of books, which you could talk about here, but we, won't, we probably don't have time, about liberty beyond the earth and how can you be free in an environment where someone else controls the oxygen you breathe. I'm mm. fascinated by freedom and liberty, the history of um, of the Enlightenment, and, and ultimately, you know how how it also led to uh, obviously, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the U.S. The founding fathers um, drew upon this these early Enlightenment ideas about individual liberty and freedom, and Scotland has always been very much a home of that. People on the scientific side, people like James Hutton, you know, who who sort of really founded modern geology, but people like mm-hmm. Hume, uh, Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations mm-hmm. and really formulated ideas of how individual self-interest leads, leads to a betterment of society, um, you know, the invisible hand. Uh, um, all of that, uh, well, not all of it, but a lot of it, in, at least in the UK, was in Scotland. Scotland was very much the sort of standard bearer of of Enlightenment um, ideas. I'm not sure why, I th- whether it was the weather... <laughs> I think uh, the institutions, the sense of independence of mind are slightly being disconnected with the, uh, you know, the, the formalities of London, maybe. But but all that history is seeped into Edinburgh and the university. And I, I, I love that history and I love the university and uh, the way in which one can take those ideas and apply them in the 21st century. I'm not one for wallowing in tradition for tradition's sake, mm-hmm. but I do think that... Um, people have worked long and hard for these ideas over many hundreds of centuries and when we look about sorry many centuries and when you look at you know look at the difficulty of um, promoting science and free thought and free thinking around the world that continues to be a challenge for many billions of people these ideas are not old-fashioned in fact in many ways we need to be pushing them more than ever so being in a being in a city that has a tradition and history of contemplating those ideas, but being able to think about astrobiology and the human future beyond the Earth, for me, is a, a wonderful intersection of the 18th century with the 21st century, and I just love that. Mm-hmm. I noted that uh, in some books I was reading that there were multiple studies that happened at the uh, University of Glasgow or University of Edinburgh where it was long-term studies where they followed people for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, and they checked, let's say, their IQ or their... Uh, brain development changes i don't remember specifically but there's some definite long-term studies that they're specifically from scotland that i noticed hmm. now one thing you mentioned uh you said freedom and liberty i i when i when i note people i always look at things like i'm very attuned to people's uh, like fearfulness or their uh, risk-taking ability what are a couple of things you look at when you look at people is there any features that you're like you take note of heavily i yeah, that's an interesting question. God, that's a good question. <laughs> this is what I think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a great thing to think about. You know, I think open-mindedness is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are so many ways. I mean, there's physics, right, and science, and that's, well, we can have arguments about whether that's rooted in reality or not, but I think mm-hmm. it's a conversation, yeah. totally different conversation. But, you know, there are mm-hmm. the facts of science. But there are very different ways in which people can conceive of the good life and their way of running society. And I do think that um, one of the things that I admire in people is inquisitive and acquisitive minds that are interested in learning about things, partly because I want to learn from other people, but mm-hmm. partly because I also find it um, frustrating when I think people are, are not open to 
um, particular interests and particular ideas. I mean, some people would say I take it too far. You know, I go off and write books on liberty when I have no uh, <laughs> background in philosophy. I've never mm -hmm. really cared about disciplinary boundaries, but I respect the same thing in other people, not just academically, but also on a general human level. I find that I'm attracted to people who uh, just want to ask questions and, and know about the world around them and find other people's idiosyncrasies not something irritating but something quite enjoying, enjoyable. And I, I think that that makes society just better. Um, I think, you know, enjoying the, the diversity of thoughts and ideas um, amongst the 7 billion of us will lead to a better society than, um, than restrictions and, and trying to fit people into boxes. I mean, this inevitably leads to to nationalisms, to mm -hmm. the them and us attitude. And I think that's one of the the most deleterious things to the to the betterment and felicity of society, if you like, is is boxing people in all the time. So that's something I look for. Other than that, I, I, I guess I just look for people who are who are pleasant. You know, I think <laughs> I think that's much uh, underestimated quality, you know, people who are just nice, right, um, is, is makes a whole difference to the world. Right, that's true. It's fun yeah. to be around. Yeah. Now, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I like open-mindedness very much too, very much. And I like the part about the not being tied into a disciplinary study. That's wonderful. Now, in this is my finale question here. In 2019, which is our year that we are in right now, uh, moving forward, what are some goals you have? or plans, or what are you looking to? I want to, I mean, I, I, this doesn't sound so interesting, I want to carry on doing what we're doing with astrobiology, continue right. teaching in prisons, mm -hmm. um, continue teaching undergraduates astrobiology. Mm -hmm. I think that also comes a point, without getting again too philosophical, it comes a point in life where you've collected a, a bunch of initiatives you've done mm -hmm. and sometimes rather than just doing lots of new things which is something you tend to do when you're younger right there's something to be said for focusing on things that you know work and really deepening them yes so i, I want to continue doing the things that i'm doing and continue to use what i have in place to advance those things more uh, more forcefully and more more productively i i want to write another book i'm in discussions with my agent about a couple of ideas um, so I want to write more and get out there in the public. I want to continue, as I say, the prison work, which I think is very exciting and having a huge impact there. So I want to expand that. Mm -hmm. And, I, of course, I want to carry on my science, doing, going in the lab, doing experiments, trying to understand the world around us and hopefully in the process at least contributing something to building up, um, building up our knowledge of science, but more practically building up a spacefaring civilization that can learn to live on this planet um successfully not something that obviously i as an individual can do mm -hmm. but something that all we all presumably want to achieve um successfully living on earth without destroying it and building a spacefaring civilization if we can achieve those two things uh, our civilization has a very very long way to go and it's tremendously exciting simply to decide that you want to make a contribution however small towards those two things so so that's that's what I'm doing in 2019. If I have a long, I get the um, the privilege of, of continuing that effort. This is wonderful. I will close up there. Professor Cockle, I am glad to have had you on this episode and discuss all these various concepts. Thank you very much. Wonderful. And we are out. <laughs>